This week it is the Brexit vote. But in this week's episode, we speak to global innovators from around the world, as recorded at the 100 Summit in Helsinki. There's a natural link to last week's guest, Pia Pakarenin, who talked about entrepreneurialism and education, as many of our guests have a background in user design or brand and have found success in applying their thinking to creating bold learning experiences. Here at the EdTech Podcast, we love questions. And this week, we'll be finding out the answers to such questions as What has Harry Potter got to do with maths and science? How do we get deep pedagogical research into our edu innovations? And my favourite, how do we offset our digital bum print through movement? But before we get started, schools, listen in. This week, I was contacted by Radio Centre about a new competition for under-18s who have a passion for audio and podcasting, a perfect subject for the EdTech podcast. Here are the team explaining more and sharing how you can get involved with your students. So, um, I'm very delighted to have on the line uh, Siobhan Kenny, the CEO of Radio Centre, uh, and George Butler, uh, also the uh, marketing lead for Radio Centre. Um, and you guys have got some details about an exciting competition relevant to our listeners. So thanks for joining this morning. And I thought perhaps you could just jump in and explain what this competition is and uh, why everyone should pay attention and, and enter as well. Okay, well, thanks for that great introduction. Listen, what we saw was a lot of talent out there among young people between the ages of 8 and 18 who are making their own radio, audio, in all sorts of different ways. So we wanted to acknowledge that. So we've joined together the whole commercial radio sector and the BBC to set up these new awards called the Young Arias. So there's all sorts of categories. So whatever it is you're good at, you can enter but basically we want to recognise all the people who are doing amazing work out there. And I think what we, we found, we kind of, we've been working on this for over a year now, and um, we set it up because we know, as Siobhan said, there are young people interested in, in radio and interested in audio and making podcasts, but actually what we didn't realise was that there are quite so many schools actively involved in this. There are nearly a thousand schools in the UK which have radio stations in or some sort of audio equipment, and they're making audio, audio as part of their lessons, uh, in many ways, it's part of their teaching plans, as well as just being something which is fun and something social. If if I'm a sort of school listening in, if I'm a you know teacher or a head teacher um, or responsible for a, uh, an academy of schools, what are the key dates and you know what criteria are there? Okay, so if you are, are either a school with a station or you've got a, a, a students in your school who are you know are actively involved in making audio podcasts, radio dramas, whatever it may be. Um, then here's, here's how it works. So on the 4th of February, the Young Arias will open for entries. Um, it's completely free to enter. You can head to our website, uh, youngarias.co.uk, and find out all the details there. That's where you can enter. But there's all the information about uh, how to enter, what the categories are, and also some of the money can't buy prizes, which students and schools can win. Um, the entry process is, is from, uh, as I said, 4th of Feb through to late March. 
And after that, in the in the middle of May, we've got our really special awards event at the BBC Radio Theatre, uh, which is going to be full of really great uh, big name presenters and also a, uh, some really cool music acts as well. That's amazing. And in terms of um, Radio Centre, so if I understand correctly, you're the industry body for commercial radio. And so this is also a chance, I would imagine, to kind of bring up that next generation of talent and keep the innovation in radio going as well. Absolutely right. I mean, that's one of our key motivators, apart from just knowing that there's loads of young kids doing great things out there. But we know that we need to bring on the next generation of talent. There's already a kind of an awards system for students. So Student Radio Awards, very well established. But there was actually nothing for a younger generation. So that's exactly what we want to do. We want to reach out, get a much more diverse uh, talent pool into radio for the next generation to make it just as fabulous as it already is. <laughs> okay, and so if you're, if you're under 18 and you're listening or you're responsible for um, people that are under 18 making audio, um, whatever form that might be, then um, check it out. Um, so it's the Young Arias, and uh, thanks both very much for coming on the show as well. Thank thanks you. for having us. <laughs> thanks to the Young Arias, and good luck with your entries, listeners. Now, let's listen to Jessica Spencer-Keys on research and innovation, Mia Coco on bringing together policy, brand and pedagogy in the early years, Armand Doucette on creating personalised and localised learning, Bryn Llewellyn on evidence-based move and learn programmes, and Serda Ferret on compassion and empathy. Enjoy! I'm here with Jessica Spencer-Keys from 100. Welcome. Thank you. And yeah, this is part of the Helsinki Education Week. Is that correct? That's right. 100 Summit's in its second year mm-hmm. and it's growing all the time. So now part of this larger Education Week and a fantastic celebration of just all these education change makers from around the world. And people use that term kind of loosely but I think that's definitely a, a, a you know true to say of who's here this week so what I was hoping is because we have these interviews from 100 for people listening in what's happening here what's 100 up to and also what are you particularly passionate about during this week to the conversations that are happening so this week is fantastic because after a year of research of innovations worldwide our selected 100 are invited to Finland here in Helsinki to share about their work and to learn from each other and to collaborate. And it's been really good this year to integrate it within the entirety of Helsinki so that the Finnish teachers have an opportunity to learn from people around the world and vice versa, the people from around the world can come here and understand what Finnish education is about and see it in action. So that's been, that's been absolutely great. 100 is looking to take this opportunity to really bring a positive message to education and to really show how you can put the problems into action. Earlier on this morning, I believe you were on a panel around, you know, students being part of that conversation as well. And we had a little chat about, you know, the general obsession around PISA tables and, you know, perhaps how do we integrate this idea of student involvement and to what extent which countries are leading on that and things being student-led uh, or learner-led as opposed to perhaps just teacher-led as well? Yeah, that's a good question. So 
we did a global youth survey here at 100 to understand what different young people around the world felt needed to improve in education. And we used this really as a guide for the innovations that were selected. We also considered all different stakeholders, but we noticed that in the research, young people very rarely get asked. And if they do get asked, the output or the outcome isn't very tangible. They don't really understand why they were asked. Mm -hmm. So here we were able to say like, this is a consequence of the incredible opinions and the comments and the the thoughts that you shared with us. Like we really want to celebrate and promote these types of innovations because we know that you think they're incredible. And I think what we learned by gaining this insight is that they have such incredible answers, like so much to give in terms of their understanding of what they need. And also it's so important to have that autonomy because as an individual, we all want to have autonomy of our own learning to be part of that collective. And so do the students. So that it's also enshrined in actually the United Nations Children's Rights Act. So in 1989, it was passed. And so we're really trying to take that and put it into practice. An innovation that does that really well, for example, is Challenge 59, one of the ones that was selected there actually from London. Um, and they really make sure that they really ask the children, like, what do you want to do? Like, are you enjoying this and getting that feedback? So that's an example of how an innovator can integrate that child's feedback into their innovation and improve as a consequence. And what does Challenge 59 do? So they go into schools in East London and they work with children to try and improve in 59 seconds their health and well-being and they do this often through dance and so through this different period of exercises it enables the teachers to really harness the children's playfulness and energy and they record it and they share this online and they integrate it into physical education classes and arts classes to really give them a sense of themselves and their well-being and how they can express themselves. And are there any other innovations as well that you would you could give a shout out to that I mean I've been variously speaking to people here but it's yeah there are hundreds so any that you could that's true yeah, if we're talking about student voice there's teach the teacher so it's a professional development program specifically set up and led by the students in the school so they spend time with the teacher saying well this is what we'd like to improve and this is why and we're going to teach you how to do that because I think we know how to as well and so really running with that at the center of it that's amazing then there's also shadow a student from school retool where every year the principal essentially shadows the students and understands the school from their perspective and they really integrate that into the development. Amazing. And it all sounds so obvious when you kind of put it like that, because anywhere else you would do that kind of user experience design, you do the research, you'd understand what the needs are. But we're kind of scared when it comes to children, I think, because it feels like our, our, the legacy teaching is always like we have to be, we know everything, we have to pass it on kind of thing. Yeah. And the latest and the most innovative impactful the school models are really using this at the centre. So really doing school driven, personalised, passion based learning. And they see incredible learning outcomes as a consequence there's so much more mastery and sense of self and they far exceed the assessments that they have to do as a consequence so what's next for you i understand that you're moving on from 100 so i'll be continuing to support 100 in their research so looking at how and why innovation spreads Mm -hmm. and then after that also considering the way evidence can be integrated in education in a better way so how do all of those incredible pieces of research actually like passy was talking about this morning Mm -hmm. How do they make their way through if so many people aren't reading them and understanding them and have that knowledge integrated? I'm fascinated by coming up with a solution to help with that. Okay, interesting. Thank you very much, Jessica.
am really delighted to be at the 100 Summit for the first time. And I'm staying in a very trendy loft apartment somewhere down in the centre of town, which is a former book warehouse, which comes replete with concrete pillars, which I managed to prang my head into in the middle of the night. Oh so <laughs> very disorientated, but it's trendy, so that's fine. Anyhow, I am delighted to take my first interview of the day with Mila uh, Magia Coco. Have I pronounced that terribly? Mila Coco is okay. Okay. Yeah. Who is the CEO and co-founder at Hay Schools. And Miller is one of the 100 innovations that are being celebrated here today from around the world. And in this instance, a bit more local to Helsinki in Finland. So let's dive straight into it, Miller. So if you could just introduce who you are and, and on the top level, what you do as well. Thanks. Really nice to meet you here, here in Helsinki and welcome. <laughs> Hope you won't hit your head again. <laughs> Me too. Yeah. <laughs> My background is actually not in education at all, which is fair to say when we're talking about education innovation. So we have a great, great education team. But I personally, I've been working with Finnish and international brands and concepts and design for 20 something years. But that has a very good reason that why I'm still sitting and standing. Finnish education has been recognized in the world for quite some time. and But the problem has been that whereas the uh, Finnish education system is 99% public, we haven't got really anything to offer outside of Finland. And that was something that when the Pilvitorsti, who was one of the founders uh, and actually the founder of high school, was working in the Minister of Education, Finland and, and meeting very many high-level people outside mm-hmm. of Finland and hosting delegations here in Finland. And every time she was asked that, oh, what could we do together? This is so wonderful. And she had to answer that, well, it's complicated. We have public system. Well, uh, uh. and the very, very similar experience is um, Professor Lasse Lipponen from University of Helsinki with yes. the early childhood education. Same thing hosting international delegations, people wondering, oh, this is wonderful, what could we do together? And every time it's complicated. This is really, really fascinating because I've had a a couple of conversations this year which are about exactly this. So one was about starting to export this idea of how Finland pilots ideas or export this, this kind of expertise and knowledge. And so it's, it feels like it's starting to happen. And then the other one was, I mean, we were talking about this last night at dinner, but perhaps it still resisted the idea of, you know, somehow packaging up this thing and, and the commercial end of that. And and mm. so in the press and stuff, it's yeah, been a bit Yeah, maybe tricky. some resistance, but, but I, I would say it's more of that, well, very natural way. The first one's doing, so to say, education export or trying to offer the model outside are teachers yeah, or other yeah. educational exp- experts, which is really natural and should be so. Yeah, yeah. On the other hand, very seldom teachers have any experience of kind of productizing or mm-hmm. building concepts or packaging something that somebody else could use. So they, these type of things very often stay on the level of consultancy or yeah. kind of helping other teachers to do something, which is really super valuable, and that's but what never talking, scale. That's what they were talking about here as well. I don't know if you got here for the end of Passy Selberg's and Saku's kind of keynotes, but they were mm. talking about how 
we need to kind of help educators use their voice to write a really mm. strong op-ed or mm. to write a, a really strong blog or, or give that speech in a town hall. Having looked at your background, I guess that's kind of where that, that expertise comes in, sort of coming up with ideas, communicating them very effectively, but simply as well. Yeah, so I think that it's not either or, that it's mm-hmm. either really teacher-led or very commercial. It can be both. And that was the kind of, I would say, the inner high school story, that we had a very strong both policy-making level uh, experience and very deep research-based pedagogical point of view and experience. And then combined with the design, branding, concept building and, and the communication. And that was <laughs> some kind of eureka moment for all of us that um, how, how come... No one did this before. <laughs> and and how did you all come to work together? You just all knew each other through work and friendships? Or? Well, yeah, well, Bilvi and I are friends over 25 years. Yeah. We never worked together. I was actually, at the time when she had this point of frustration, I was having my sabbatical leave for six months and traveling in Southeast Asia on a, some, <laughs> I don't know, yoga beach. At yeah. the, <laughs> and Bilvi sending me a message, can we Skype? I was like, sure. We can Skype. I'm so frustrated. We need to do something. You do this something for your job, but can you package this? <laughs> and it's like, yeah, I can spar you a little bit. It's no problem. And then, like, in a few weeks, it was like, hey, we must found a company. University of Helsinki is with. You are one of the founding partners. I will fake your autograph. <laughs> so it's a little kind of bit of exaggeration, but not much. So it, it was kind of a... That so it happened we need very to, naturally. Yeah, we yeah. need to do something. On the other hand, then Anne Rosanna, who's our head of design, is also my ex-colleague. And yeah. I called Anne that, Anne, we need to do a website and a logo and a business card for Pilvi. She's going to this slush fair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then I strongly believe that in a good and bad, when things are about to happen they will get an extra boost. Mm-hmm. Like in, in my mind, for example, how is it possible that Mr. Trump is the president of <laughs> USA is also an example of that. Mm-hmm. When that type of thing is about to happen, yeah. it will get an extra effort. So do you see it as like a cyclical yeah. thing? So yeah. it's going to come around and, and that trajectory is already set? And Yeah, I, I think that this needed to happen. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're super happy that we can be part of it. Mm-hmm. And of course, we also understand that Hey School is not the only thing that is making that. So let's yeah. put all of our listeners yeah. out of their misery and tell them what <laughs> Hey School is as well. So you were explaining that it means high as well. Yeah, yeah. Hey comes from Helsinki International Schools, but yeah. it Hey is also in the Finnish version of hello, nihao, hi, hola. So yeah. And in a nutshell, so what is it and who's it aimed for and where's it going? Yeah, so this was our bit to offering the Finnish school internationally for others than Finns to run. So uh, we are focusing, at least for now, for the very smallest children, so from zero to six. So kindergarten or preschool or nursery, yeah. that has very different terms on every market. Yeah. <laughs> But to offering a very well-taught licensing package for local school owners or preschool owners to run. So we are not really ourselves operating or running mm-hmm. the businesses, but we are offering a very well thought package 
for local teams and partners to run. To pick up and run. And so if I were one of those teams and I were interested in, in leading that locally, what sets Hay Schools apart? What's the kind of philosophy or, you know, what's the kind of big vision behind it as well? Well, I think that in our case, the innovation that we are doing is not really the um, Finnish preschool model. We cannot take credits for that. Yeah. So that has been <laughs> that has been developed for decades with the many, many, many Finnish teachers, researchers, parents, students, and so on. Mm-hmm. But our innovation is that how to offer that outside. So the we are following really, really strictly the uh, kind of Finnish national early childhood curriculum and the approach there. And that approach has been kind of ranked as a, on the top of the world many and, times. And is yeah. that still the things that we imagine? So, you know, going to school later or more play-based learning or really training and holding the teachers up in high regard? So how, what what are the kind of key identifiers of what makes that the Finnish model? Well, this is obviously, <laughs> we could sit here for three days. <laughs> yeah. But I would say that for me now being digging deeper and deeper in the kind of model both the Finnish model and preschool and and early childhood education on a larger scale, I think that the main topics are that the Finnish model is much less competitive ranking kind of traditional schooling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, all all in all, the kind of competition ranking schooling and and the kind of Mm teacher-led approach, whereas the Finnish model, like Hay School as well, is much, much more kind of looking things from the child's perspective, Mm -hmm. encouraging for the creativity, for the innovation, for play, using play also that play and the kind of inquiry-based learning is the most natural way for anybody, not only for children, for any human being, Mm -hmm. basically, to learn. And we know all that. Whereas I have not personally very deep kind of background in, in a education science or research but where I have been for the last three years digging deeper and deeper it has been quite surprising for me as well to understand that this is something that everyone knows so in in the research community all around the world that people human beings are learning best when they uh, their learning is based for this self-inquiry yeah yeah and and interest and and led by them and it's just, it's just so scary for us as adults because we are so used to get the rankings that mm-hmm. we have to get a ranking in certain... To understand if we're winning or doing or yeah, yeah. And so, so it's yeah. it's kind of twisted thing that mm-hmm. we know that this works better and there are even examples on that and proofs, but it's so scary to let go. Mm-hmm. So this, I think that this is also about something that we called culture of trust that the trust is on a multiple layers. It's between the management and between the teachers. So, and, and in many, many levels. And so you've launched already? Are you already in yeah. multiple countries? And Yeah, we are. Um, the company is a little less than three years old. Okay, so yeah. we are toddler ourselves. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Barely walking. Well, yeah. I bet you're not on a Southeast Asian beach much anymore. <laughs> you're like, no, maybe we've had no, the yoga. I'm not, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, I'm lucky not. But yeah, we um, first ever high school started in, in China, Baotou, 
in September 2017, so a year and a half ago. There is now little more than 100 children, and they are planning a next high school in the same city. This autumn, we opened three more high schools, one in Helsinki, actually, yeah. one in Melbourne, and one in Guangzhou, uh, China, as well. From all of the writing that I've seen, it, you know, if you can get that model correct, it can really fly as well. So obviously some of the largest educational kind of institutions that are doing well, some of the, the kind of early years chains of nurseries and that kind of thing. But I suppose they have that label of being a bit, you know, kind of churn them out, whereas this seems a bit more. Yeah, well, we have had extremely good feedback yeah, from yeah all levels, so from teachers, from operators, from parents, and of course, the most importantly, from children. Yeah, yeah. So the kind of the most important feedback to us is the feedbacks that a mother tells that this is the first kindergarten where my son is happy. And can we uh, <laughs> expect to see you in the UK anytime soon? We would love to. <laughs> so like I told earlier that whereas we are not operating the uh, schools or, or kindergartens mm-hmm. ourselves. So we need to find local partners who would partners. be willing to operate a high school on that particular market, for example, in U- UK. Very exciting. And, and, yeah. and will you continue working with this, with the high schools or? Uh, because, sure. Yeah. 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 I, I think we are, we started with a team of basically three people <laughs> or, or two and a half. And now we are in Finland about. 12, 13, and in, in China, five high school, um, high school employees, uh, but, and we are growing at the, all the time. So it's really, really great to see. It, it was one of the, uh, actually, the Chinese teachers, Tzu Kai, who said at the one point that, you know, we're not really building Finnish culture here. We're not building Chinese culture here. We're building Hay culture. And this is a hay family. And I was almost crying. I was like, you are so wonderful. (laughs) Well, congratulations on being one of the 100 uh, top 100 innovations. And uh, yeah, look forward to following your work as well. Thank you. Thank you. I'm here with Aman Doucette. Uh, one of the Global Teacher Prize alumni, should I say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I'd agree with that. So, Man, for people who are listening, can you give us a little overview of what you do and what your life has been like in the last couple of years? So, what I do, that's a big question. My wife would say I travel around. <laughs> Basically, I'm a school teacher. And my background's in sales, marketing, kinesiology, and history. But I'm a school teacher, high school teacher, history, and world issues. I've been lucky enough to, in the last few years, travel quite a bit, having been recognized for different projects. Just open up a, a global network of education thought leaders, policymakers, teachers, and has given me the opportunity to write a book with other Global Teacher Prize nominees, and now currently writing my second book. Okay, and then so the projects that got you recognized in the first place, can you walk us through some of those? Yeah, there's many. And I have to say that it's not just me, it's always me and my colleagues and the leadership that's given us the opportunity. So in middle school, we ran uh, some large-scale interdisciplinary projects that were school-wide. 
one that would probably be interesting for your listeners in the UK was we transformed the whole school into Hogwarts and we had a Harry Potter week, like a full week. And I mean, like everything that we did was Harry Potter base. So we took the curriculum outcomes for that week for all our subjects and we based it off Harry Potter. So like we were doing mixtures in science eight and then we would have done potions. They were doing uh, dissections in grade six. So we did owl pellets. They were learning the flight in grade seven science. So what we did is we ended up looking at a broom and how could we really make it fly like a plane? So the whole concept was about Harry Potter. Everybody was in full costume. Every teacher had a character. I was Dumbledore for the week. So they put me in front of the mic. We had over 1.8 million views online. We were trending on Reddit for four days, I believe, because the kids were so excited. We recreated the main hall, the whole culture. We had a Triwizards Cup, a Triwizards Dance. We had Wizards Chess, where the mayor came in. Everybody, each class, participated against each other. And then you had one that was a wizard or a chess wizard that would have been in the back directing. So everybody sort of got a chance to perform. Our kids that were really enriched in literacy were creating a newspaper every day Uh, we had moving pictures don't ask me how we created that but basically it was a full onslaught of harry potter for a full week and whereabouts is this happening which part of the that was in riverview new brunswick so if you google riverview middle school harry potter you'll get some of the videos that are online some of the news feeds and We had created houses, we had t-shirts donated, so everybody had their own house. Playing Quidditch in a gym in Canada, where hockey's a foundation, it's quite dangerous. I'm just going to put that out there, but it was a lot of fun. How long was that in the planning? We started planning in September, a group of teachers, about seven of us. And um, I had the ID uh, after some literacy scores had come out. I said, hey, I've got some ideas of maybe getting kids hooked on, on reading some books. And I went to the English lead and she loved it because I was teaching physical education at the time. So we got together and we started planning. And then the whole planning process, we gradually got everybody on board through different meetings and presentations. And then the last three weeks, the kids were involved in decorations as well. And then the last week, and we as teachers and volunteers, we took about 100 hours over that weekend. And that's when we transformed the school. So when the kids left on Friday, it's regular school. When they came back on Monday and they go through our cafeteria to come in, they had over 500 lights up in the air, like the hanging candles. So, you know, the ones that you switch for like a dollar. So we had to switch them all on and then put them all up with uh, clear rope. And it was it was amazing. It was a lot of fun. And it was fun to have a staff that was willing to do that. And then from there, I moved into high school and had a lot of success with some of the history projects that we created. And it was recognized nationally. And then from that, sort of got where I I am now. It sounds like it's always getting the hook in, getting the engagement. Yeah, it's uh, I I call it the win-win, always building relationships. And that's a bit of my sales background, probably. It's, It's not about what I can transfer. It's about how can we win together. And by creating those relationships, it usually goes in the right direction. So you mentioned the sort of interdisciplinary part of that. I think, well, certainly we're in Finland and that's obviously a big part of how they're looking at education. But it's something that certainly I think even if there's a will to do it, sometimes people struggle with because, you know, how do you actually kind of connect and and teach those subjects in a sort of combined way? So do you have any tips for people listening on that? If there's a will, there's a way. (laughs) I know that sounds kind of corny, but... 
the first thing is the leadership. Uh, if the leadership isn't appropriate for that type of learning or in the right direction or in the same wavelengths, then it's not going to work because you're going to have a group of teachers that are just going to keep butting their heads against the leadership. So what I mean by that is sort of having school administration, districts, policymakers that are, are visionaries and inspiring leaders that want to bring the best out of their profession and the best out of teachers instead of trying to manage. And we're seeing that across the world in systems. There's a real difference between the systems that are pushing professional autonomy like Finland and where teachers are really respected, trusted, but they also take that mantle and seize that mantle and really are the designers of learning experiences versus systems that it's more, it's getting to be an occupation, mm -hmm. checking in, checking out. Mm -hmm. Okay, this is the checklist. This is a lesson plan today. We're going to follow, not giving you the autonomy to mm -hmm. actually personalize it to the kids that are there. And I think that's going down the wrong path. You'll often see when you you stabilize that and when you have that, and it's very much a business model where it's like we're going to scale it for consistency. So a la McDonald's, everybody's going to do the same. You get mm -hmm. a Big Mac in Finland, you get a Big Mac in Hong mm -hmm. Kong, you get a Big Mac in Washington, it's the same thing. And there's no difference. Now, McDonald's... What there's no nutritional value. No, no <laughs> nutritional value. But what they're starting to realize is that they're starting to personalize it based on the different cultures. Mm -hmm. So I can get chicken wings in Helsinki. You can't get that in Canada. I can get different types of food when I'm in China at a McDonald's. Can't get that anywhere else. So they're starting to personalize it, realizing that that consistency, they can't hit their targets. So what they're realizing in the business world now we haven't realized in the education mm -hmm. world when we started getting that top-down model of every school needs to be similar. So when it becomes an occupation, that's dangerous because then teachers don't feel the liberty to personalize to those children. Uh, and I think that's sort of where I'm heading with that. And so you mentioned you're writing a book at the moment and you've obviously just had a book out. So are these some of the, the kind of ideas that you cover in your book? I don't want to give it all the way, <laughs> but I'll give it away for you, Sophie. So... Yeah, we, we are covering some of those ideas. We're, we're really looking at change over the last 30 years in the teaching profession. It's going to be part of the leading change series for Routledge, which is edited by Andy Hargraves and Pak Tiang. And basically the education thought leaders of the last 30 years, the big titans like Michael Fullan, Passy Salberg, uh, Alma Harris, have all written about their own sort of change process and how they've gone through it, almost like memoirs. Mm -hmm. uh, but what was missing for the series was, from a teacher's perspective, how has change influenced the classroom and a perspective worldwide, which because of my network at the moment, I'm able to reach out and see different examples, but I've also seen different jurisdictions across the world and have a pretty good idea of the global north, global south, mm -hmm. and what's happening in classrooms. And from your travels, what have been some of the memorable occasions that you've either gone and visited schools or chance conversations you've had where they've really kind of blown your mind? You know, the, the big thing for me is when you look at OECD, the PISA scores, And when you get policymakers that start comparing scores and they think it's apples to apples, mm -hmm. but the reality is if you don't go into those systems and look at the strengths, weaknesses, mm -hmm. values, beliefs, political systems, you don't really get a true appreciation for why something works or why something doesn't or why do they score 
0.5 better on the PISA score, which is really like a 0.2 on a test, versus why they wouldn't. Like if you take the Singapore model, mm -hmm. it's a 25-kilometer radius for Singapore in one city. They have to build a garden within the city. Actually, they call it a city within the garden. And they don't have a choice because that's the only way they're going to be sustainable. And it is a, it's not a democracy. So they get to choose how they're going to run the system. And for them, it's all about survival. And it's a bit when you hear about Finland's model originally as well. It was the same thing 75 years ago or 70 years ago when they built it. It was all about survival and how we're going to build national identity after having been run by uh, the Russians for so long. And if you don't know the strengths and weaknesses you can't compare those scores because once you start comparing those scores it might not make sense for your culture so that's one of the big learnings that i've had definitely i mean it's interesting with finland because people you know we kind of evangelize certain countries and it's not really even fair on the country because it's sort of suggesting that they're not as complex as they are as well and, and there's different funding mechanisms behind each so yeah the grass is always greener <laughs> yeah it, it is always greener and i mean most systems are doing some really good things yeah, yeah some things that you can leave on the side and it's it's always a balancing act and you need to realize when that balancing act is going off that rope and what i've really realized from some of the travels was that it doesn't take long for things to go bad but it also it takes a lot of time for change to occur. And if you're going to make systematic changes, and I'm not talking band-aids, right? If you're looking at scores and then all of a sudden, you know, suicide rates are up. So we're going to put mental health in every classroom and we're going to give a one-hour session in every class about mental health. Mm -hmm. That's a band-aid solution. Mm -hmm. It's never going to work. You're going to have to go back to the root causes of why is that happening. Mm -hmm and then systematically change it. So maybe we would put an extra one hour of physical education every day. Maybe for twice a week for that one hour, it's yoga for mindfulness. And, and really approach it from a systematics point of view and not a Band-Aid situation. And I feel oftentimes policy making and change across the systems across the world have been Band-Aids. Mm. Sometimes we throw money at things as well. Yeah, because that's the, it's the right thing for the newspapers. Mm -hmm. Right. It's the right thing to get you elected or it's the right thing to get support, but it might not be the right thing to do over a 10 year or over 30 year plan. And you're seeing some of that and seeing a lot of money be wasted, but also seeing like if you look at the United States, depending on the state, the money not divided properly. Right. And, and then that pushes a socioeconomic situation where it's almost racist in some ways, mm -hmm. where some of the some of the cultures have no chance at all because their schools are funded by the land taxes. And if you're in a poor area, guess what? Hmm. Your school's not going to get what you're going to get in a richer area. That's really interesting. Yeah. yeah. So you do a lot of travel. Last question. <laughs> what do you do to keep yourself occupied? When I do travel, it tends to be very quick. And mostly because I don't want to miss many school days. Mm -hmm. I, I believe that for me to learn then I need to see other things to be able to bring it back to my classroom and to continue to grow my professional learning community, but also grow my own professional learning community at home, not just the network worldwide, and to connect those people with people worldwide that they can grow their professional learning community. So oftentimes when I'm on the road, I'm either marking, uh, writing, networking. On the planes, I tend to sleep. Yeah, I'm really good at just finding a corner and just 
knocking myself out for a couple of hours and then waking up wherever I am fresh, ready to go. But it's go, go, go from the minute I land to the minute I leave and then get back to the young family and that doesn't stop. No, no. So your book's out in May, is that right? Yeah, it should be May or June. May or June. Okay, no pressure. And um, (laughs) if people want to follow you on Twitter and see what you're up to. Yeah, so my Twitter and Instagram account is uh, Doucette Armin. So D-O-U-C-E-T-A-R-M-A-N-D. They can follow me on both. I tend to be active i usually follow back if they want to send me a private message or a tweet then i'm usually available awesome all right thank you so much thank you sophie i'm here with bryn llewellyn from tagtivate and you are one of the 100 innovations at 100 Summit. Yeah, kind of like a massive achievement to be amongst so many awesome people. I was nominated the previous year, but didn't quite make it, didn't make the final cut because it was such a, a small organisation with no research to, to prove impact. And since then, we've had a research investigation by uh, Leeds Beckett University. That was a randomised control test, uh, gold standard. So it went to Nesta. Nesta gave it level five. So it was kind of like, I think that was the tipping point that made us stand out in terms of people are now beginning to realise that it's not just about fun and enjoyment. It does have an impact in terms of on cognition as well as physicality. That's amazing. And what has been the impact of of having that report come out? Because I I would imagine that's quite a lot of years of work or run up or prep and waiting for the results to come out as well. Yeah, it's kind of hard pressed in terms of somebody testing your ideas out and challenge you and then when you go to get the results of the research it's kind of like, like picking up your GCSE yeah grade. something like that so the feedback's been great on it so the anecdotes are now backed by actual evidence and so for those people listening in who might not be aware of what you do mm. can you sort of describe exactly what it is and when you kind of started that as well okay so my background is teaching primary teacher deputy head teacher acting head teacher I just got a little bit hacked off by the fact that we had such a narrow curriculum in the arts were being shunted to one side and I thought hang on a moment if we're going to be teaching English and maths let's try and teach it using physical activity how do you describe tag to fate uh, think tag rugby meets yeah. scrabble tag rugby meets countdown so the children are physically engaged in a challenge they run around grabbing tags in different ways so the tags are the building blocks a little bit like Lego yeah. so they have the building blocks then they have to work with those building blocks in terms of solving problems. The problems could be mathematical or they could be language-based. And when did you launch this enterprise? Um, 2013 officially registered as a limited company. During that time, it was a case of like, Tagtivate was a baby in amongst a few other babies. So now the baby is a toddler, okay. complete with yeah, a couple of tantrums now and again. Yes, yes. And they all come with those. Yeah. Um, so that's amazing. And so to date, so you're based in, was it in Lancashire? Oh. Sorry, have I made a boo-boo? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. Yeah. Yorkshire, just Yorkshire. on the other side of the Pennines. Oh, sorry. Yes. So um, I had a wonderful time at watching the Yorkshire Tour de France okay. uh, a few years back. So we had great fun in, in uh, cycling across the Dales and meeting uh, okay. everyone there. Uh. Funnily enough, uh, yesterday during the presentation uh, at the workshop, I was referencing the fact that Yorkshire has three mountains. So um, when I was a primary teacher, a young primary teacher, we had um, uh, working with uh, 
years three and four, eight mm-hmm. and nine year olds. So we used to do one mountain one week, one mountain the next, third mountain in the third week. And the fourth week, we would do all three mountains together, 25 miles, three mountains with eight and nine year olds. Wow. So what we're saying is, would you be able to do that nowadays with eight and nine year olds compared to 20 years ago? Chances are not because of the fact that we are sitting down all the time, the problems of increasingly sedentary lifestyles. Obesity is this huge, mm. huge problem. So you launched in 2013, yeah. or limited company then. Does it feel like the idea of the importance of our body in terms of what it means for our sort of cognition and mental work as well, that is it becoming more accepted that the two are firmly intertwined? Because it's certainly here, and obviously, you know, you, you perhaps have got some of those people that are putting some of those ideas forward, perhaps more so than in the kind of mainstream mm. education. There has been that continued theme of the importance of moving, of how our using our body also informs how we learn as well. I think quite often classrooms, well, they've not changed that much over the years. Mm-hmm. Technology's moved on, but the classrooms are still fundamentally sitting down. I do feel that many teachers feel as if the children aren't sitting down, they're harder to control, and there are issues there in terms of behaviour management. Mm-hmm. But there are some awesome schools out there doing some amazing things with move and learn approaches. So we're not saying like, hey, let's run around the classroom. You know, there's movement around the classroom doing things purposefully. There's some awesome video content, say, with the BBC Supermovers. So you can do that movement and learning in the classroom. You could take the movement outside, take the learning outside into the PE hall. It's not about running around the classroom, as I say. It's about purposeful learning, mm-hmm. having those conversations with partners, with groups, and solving problems. I heard yesterday about Challenge 59, I think it was. Oh, yeah. I love them to bits. And then I guess people will be familiar as well with the Daily Mile. Mm-hmm. and So hopefully we'll see more and more of this becoming... Yeah. yeah, it's interesting in terms of you mentioned the Daily Mile there and the conversations that we've had with them. I mean, they're, they're, they're gorgeous in terms of the, the publicity that they've generated mm-hmm. and schools are saying, wow, this is something that we have to be involved in. But even they're saying that the Daily Mile is not the silver bullet. Mm-hmm. And they've recognised the fact that some children might actually be turned off physical activity by being forced to do a daily mile. So sort so of like ideas of when, you know, back in... The, oh, when yeah, I was those cross-country days. Yeah, the, in your vest and how you go yeah, and yeah. freeze to death. Yeah, so it will work with certain children, but it mm-hmm. won't work for all. So even the people at the Daily Mile are saying, actually, we're not saying it is a daily mile. What we're saying it is about 15 minutes of physical activity yeah. every day. And if you work with the children and find out what makes them tick... What are their drivers? You'll find that they will be, you know, doing their 50 minutes of activity on a skateboard, on a pogo stick, on a space hopper, or they'll be just like jogging gently or or moving freely. Yeah. Very interesting. And so most of the schools that you work with Mm. at the moment, are they mostly based in the UK or international? Probably got about 200 schools on board Mm. at the moment. Most of them in the UK. We've got a scattering in, in Australia, a couple in France, Northern Ireland and Ireland. And it's just those pioneering schools that see what's out there. They've come to me and I'm quite happy to go anywhere just to try to get an opportunity to work and play with teachers. And it's when you work and play with the teachers that they realise that, hang on a moment, you know, these ideas are pretty simple to run with. My son's getting to that age now and visiting primary schools. And yeah, I was quite shocked when you see even, I mean, 30 children isn't sort of, that's probably quite average, Mm. but like when they're sort of in a classroom all sat down, there is hardly any room to Mm. move. And that does kind of make you already feel slightly, I don't know, like kind of 
feels like it boxes in some of your ideas as well. Physical space is so important oh, to yeah. feel like you can have expansive mm-hmm. thought, I think. Yeah, so there's, there's some schools that I work with, Malton Community Primary mm. School up in North Yorkshire, and they don't have enough seats for every child in the class. So they have like, like standing, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know that well. So in terms of there are standing desks, but there's also open space okay. for them to work around. And then the visit to Helsinki this week, mm-hmm. the opportunity to go and visit an elementary school was amazing just to... What, what was it away. like? Because I, I arrived Wednesday evening, so I was really gutted okay. to meet, uh, lose these, yeah. uh, misses. Well, I had, I had the double whammy in terms of visiting school, but also delivering two tag to fate math sessions okay well so we brought over a stripped down tag to fate kit yeah. obviously because of like luggage restrictions etc but it was fascinating delivering a mathematical lesson through physical activity to children who maybe didn't have a grasp of english okay so <laughs> sounds it, chaotic it does but you know what it worked and watching these children do the physical challenge and they filled the baskets with the tags that they grabbed from each other and what was really good was the teachers got involved as well yeah. and then gave them the thinking challenge about sorting these numbers. <gasps> Blown away by it. They were so creative and so engaged in the challenge that had been given. Yeah. And so now you've had the report out and you've, yeah. you know, you've got that really, really substantial piece of work. Mm-hmm. So to back what you're doing, what's kind of next for you? You mentioned you're already in Australia and yeah. France, I think it was. Yeah. What's kind of the next six months? Look, what's um, that look like? It's about the scalability. As the guys from 100 have said all the time, you've got to think universally. If your innovation works in one country, will it work elsewhere? And having seen the children in Finland this week, yes. Having seen the children in Australia and France and Ireland, the answer is yes. But I'm only one person on my own, and it's a case of how do we build it? Do we do it via licensing or franchising? But I think my ideal opportunity or my ideal way forward would be Tactivate powered by X, X being a bigger company. Mm-hmm. So you're looking at the uh, the likes of Lego. Uh, the CEO today was talking about the playfulness, the joyfulness. And I was just thinking, you know, Tactivate powered by Lego. How cool would that be? That would be very cool. You need to, uh, you shouldn't be talking to me. You should be going for uh, it. Maybe. Or, or Tactivate powered by a tech company. Yeah. As I say, we've had the conversation already in terms of people sit down for far too long. You know, and I'm not saying that the tech companies are responsible for it, Mm -hmm. but maybe it could be a case of that. Let's offset our digital bump print and doing that sort of work. (laughs) I'm putting it out there. If anybody wants to contact me, please do. And and you mentioned you're off to Hong Kong. Yeah, the Department for International Trade have got a trade mission out to Hong Kong. So they're focusing on northern powerhouse companies because I'm based in uh, Yorkshire as Mm -hmm. opposed to Lancashire. It means that we go out there and explore some opportunities with uh, that area. Yeah. Wonderful. And if people are listening in and they'd like to get in contact mm. with you, John Goodwin, how do they do that? There is a website, Tagtivate. And sometimes now I think I should have thought of a different name because when you spell it, it's T-A-G-T-I-V number eight. So tagtive8.com on Twitter, on Instagram, on Facebook. Just reach out. And yeah, I'd love to work and play with as many schools as possible. Amazing. Thank you very much. And congratulations. Thank you very much too. So I'm delighted to be here with Serda Ferret, the CEO of Lifter. Co-CEO. Co-CEO, collaborative like that. 
and we're here at the 100 Summit and you're one of, Lifter is one of the top 100 innovations. So congratulations. Well, thank you very much. And thanks very much for coming to Helsinki to visit. Yeah, well, thank you for sending me all the instructions and I managed to negotiate my way from the airport to the city centre on a bus rather than a, a really expensive taxi, which always feels like you're winning when you when you manage to do that. So. But I was also, although I should have been prepared for this, quite shocked by the lack of light already. (laughs) But but someone who's from Helsinki just told me that November and December are the sort of darkest months. Yeah, they're the worst months. And then, you know, it starts getting lighter January, February. And when it snows, it's like a new world. When you wake up and there's snow, it's like, oh! Everyone sort of is sort of lifted slightly. And the other thing I was quite confused by when I landed was, because I haven't been to Finland before, was there were so many Japanese people at the airport. And then I learned that it's it's kind of like a quick route into Europe. So if you're coming from Japan and also the kind of cultural ties between the two countries. So I've been reading about that, which is, again, something I'd, I wasn't aware of before. Yeah, I wasn't aware of that before <laughs> I moved here. But yeah, lots of Japanese uh, tourists in Helsinki, lots yeah. of uh, Korean tourists, yeah, uh, some Chinese as well. But there there are ties between... Finland and Japan, particularly with uh, regards to design, that goes back a while. So they come and they they really like Finnish design. For a short period, we lived near the Marimekko headquarters. Marimekko is one of the famous Finnish design brands. Okay. And you'd get busloads of Japanese tourists coming there. And even though it it wasn't particularly central, it was in a suburb. So perhaps you could tell our listeners a little bit about Lifter, about what you do, and also the journey to, to coming, be in Finland and, and, and working out of here as well. Okay, so Lifter, in a nutshell, it's a platform for immersive stories from around the world. So what that means is we invite teachers and children to explore new places in different countries where they can literally click into a place, look around it in 360 degrees uh, on a computer or a tablet and on virtual reality if they have virtual reality, but it's not a requirement Uh, because we know that very few schools actually have virtual reality equipment. They can look around a space, a context, click on things to understand that context better. And in each space, there's always a human being that they can bring to life. And that human being, when clicked, comes to life in the form of a short documentary between three and five minutes long. And that short documentary is designed to designed to be the emotional hook, really, Mm -hmm. uh, and designed to be a stimulus to open up. Uh, various topics, themes, etc., that can be then delved into by the teacher and covered with the either the lesson plans we provide or lesson plans that the teacher makes or assemblies, etc. So to kind of paint that picture one step further, what are some of the top scenarios that you might have that think have been really impactful uh, on the platform? So uh, I think the most impactful stories uh, we've got are from a little village in Ethiopia called Araamba. It's an egalitarian village in the north of Ethiopia that was founded 45 years ago by 19 farmers and shepherds. Uh, It's evolved into this amazing (laughs) little micro society and and none of the founders could read or write because they didn't go to school. But over the course of 45 years, through sheer determination and just creative thinking and problem solving, they've evolved to about 500 people. There's a massive waiting list of people who'd like to, to join the community and 83 of the 500 people have been to university. So they've gone from zero literacy 
to 17% graduates in a few decades. And, 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 and how do you uncover some of these stories? Because, I mean, for example, that one, I mean, I don't even know where to, to start. So how do you uncover them and identify them and build them into content that is something to sort of use to explain concepts to, to children as well? Well, actually, the way it happened was quite funny. So Paulina, my partner, my co-CEO and I are both uh, filmmakers. Uh, we met on our master's degree in documentary filmmaking in 2003. And we came across our rumba in 2004. So we were recent graduates from our master's. And this was a fascinating story. And our immediate thought was, oh, we, we should make a documentary about this. This is a really fascinating story. But after visiting several times and really getting to know the people there, we thought we don't just want to make a documentary about this. We, we actually want to make something much more experiential. We want to take people there. And we started researching immersive storytelling. And it took us a while because this was a self-funded project at the time. And we made our first immersive interactive documentary with the community. And this was ready at the end of 2013. And because it was quite a new way to tell stories, it wasn't completely unique because there have been other people doing uh, similar. But it was quite a new way of telling stories. And, and we, were, we had a lot of attention. So we were flown around the world to show at various film festivals. Part of it was featured in The Guardian. And that was all, in our mind, that was always our audience, the Guardian reader. You know, the 18 plus year old, educated, progressive individual. But my dad, uh, who's a primary school teacher, a retired primary school teacher, uh, when he saw the content, he said, have you ever shown this to children? And we said, yeah, we, we showed it to some teenagers at a film festival in Norway. He said, no, have you shown it to children? To, to primary school children and we said no he said I highly recommend that you just try this in a classroom because the content is quite short it's designed to be clear and easy to understand and when we showed it to children in our first classroom test in a school in Ipswich it was life-changing. Imagine I'm a teacher listening in can you describe how for example in a school setting they would go about using that in a lesson? Yeah, so you need at least one screen, ideally. Well, you, you really do need at least one screen, so at least one computer. Yeah. And say, for example, a classroom that has one computer like on that's, uh, that's attached to a projector or a big screen, uh, the teacher can, can then sort of go into Lufter and find different explorable contexts that they'd like to, to show. They can click into a place, look around literally by clicking and dragging their mouse and you can see clearly which content is, is sort of active and, and can be activated by clicking and they can use it like that but the most ideal setup is for a teacher to introduce it on the, on the main board or in an assembly and then the children to have their own devices so they can do their own explorations. Interesting and from the point of view of the lessons that they're learning mm -hmm. so is it about so my understanding previously was that it's you know cultivating empathy skills or you know increasing understanding of different cultures when you pivoted slightly towards educational use of lifter like what was the kind of vision there i should also mention that i was a teacher for a while mm -hmm. so i taught from 2005 to 2011 i taught every single year uh, started off teaching level one and two qualifications to basically school dropouts um, yeah. that was my first teaching job and then i moved on to as level and btech media studies um, and then I taught at university and at a private college. So I've taught over a thousand people. So I do understand a little bit about standing in front of a group of, a group of people and trying to engage them. And I used to use media quite a lot to do that. Yeah, you know, yeah. Obviously because of my filmmaking background. But I think one of the main outcomes is that it gives 
teachers a safe way to introduce children to lots of different people from a diverse uh, range of backgrounds, people who do various different jobs, and from people from all over the world. By giving the children a kind of sort of logical, connected environment, we go straight into somebody's home, for example. So, for example, a taxi driver uh, called Mohammed, who's a single father of a little girl called Amina. Yeah. Um, we can see where they live. We can click on things to understand where they live a bit better. And then when we click on Mohammed, we go into quite a personal story about Mohammed. And we, we find out that he lost his wife to cancer, mm-hmm. uh, that, that he sort of struggles but, but maintains hope. Uh, when bringing up Amina uh, and it's quite an emotional story that then allows the teacher to to delve into important and actually quite difficult topics in some cases. Mm -hmm. So it's moving away from this idea of people being sort of two-dimensional and actually getting into the complexities of what it is to be a human wherever you are. Thank you that's it that's a a really brilliant way to put it so that's just one example or then we can go into a ballet studio Mm -hmm. and we can meet a Czech male ballet dancer and we can click him and he's doing the splits in the air when we click him we click him he sort of comes to life lands on his feet and then he starts talking about his dreams as as, as a young boy and his dream was not to be a ballet dancer it was to be an ice hockey player and you know he was he's quite a macho guy and it took him a very long time to be able to accept the fact that actually he's a ballet dancer and, and to be able to tell his friends that he's a ballet dancer. And what kind of lessons do people end up using Lifter in? Most of our schools are primary schools, yeah, where it's okay. a bit easier to do sort of cross-curricular stuff. Right, um, yeah. But it's really good for literacy, mm-hmm. for example. So actually, the lesson plans that we've made, we've made, I think, over 90 lesson plans, and we cover over 90% of Key Stage 2 literacy with, with the sort of activities and tasks that we've designed. So it can act as a sort of stimulus to say, okay, now go off and write about... Exactly, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, it's also really good for geography, for PSHE, citizenship. All schools have to do SMSC. And tell us a little bit about moving to Finland and what sort of sparked that and what that experience has been like and what you've kind of taken from it in terms of developing Lifter or your, you know, the, the vision behind it as well. So I moved to Finland for personal reasons. So my wife, Paulina, who also is one of the co-founders of Lifter, is Finnish. And we were having a baby and she said, I'd really like to be close to my parents when we've had the baby. So we said, "Okay, let's move to Finland. And the idea was to move here six months back at the end of 2013. But we were still here after five years (laughs) and um, it's going really well. Well, and what a great place to be if you work in education as well. So. Absolutely. And actually, I think that's helped a lot. But the but the connection with England is actually also really, really important. I, I don't think we would have made Lifter or founded Lifter had it not been for my dad and his colleagues in England. Might sound odd. I, I can tell you the story. I don't know how long this is going to yeah, be in your well, podcast. Yeah, go for it. It might be the, the key story of the podcast. Before. So when my dad first sort of looked at the Al Ramba experience, which was a standalone interactive documentary. It wasn't made for Lifter, but it actually inspired everything we did afterwards with Lifter. Um, when he looked at it and said, you, you should really try this in a classroom with children, he also said, you should go and see my old boss, Graham Smith, who was quite senior in CEA Islington, the Education Authority in Islington. And he's a very clever man. He's a very stern man. He's very not a very easy man to excite. When I showed the Al Ramba experience to Graham, he got really excited this is an uh, Oxford graduate in history in his 50s, you know. He got very excited uh, and he emailed about 20 people CCing me in and saying, you've got to see this. Uh, and one of those people was Lisa Tanner, 
who's also a colleague of my dad's. And Lisa is a global learning specialist. And she was working at Pearson as one of their uh, consultants for global learning. Okay. And when she saw the Aramba experience, she said, this is the best global learning resource I've ever seen. It wasn't designed as a global learning resource. It was designed as an interactive documentary for Guardian readers. And, and she said this would absolutely work in a classroom. And she helped connect us to something called the Global Learning Programme. And actually, funnily enough, she said, oh, she didn't know that I was living in Helsinki at the time. She said, oh, there's a brilliant education festival in Helsinki in a couple of weeks. I wonder if you can see if, if you can be a speaker there. And I said, I live in Helsinki. She said, no, you must try this. So she connected us with the people who were running this festival I think it was called Oppi Festival. Oppi, yeah, 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 yeah. They've just had their event in Venice, I believe. Oh, really? Yeah, okay, yeah. so it was in Helsinki that year, and we yeah. got in touch, and they said, actually, it's funny, funny you've just contacted us because someone's just dropped out from the main stage. We went and presented at Oppi Festival, <laughs> and someone from Rovio's learning department, so Rovio's the company that made... Is it Lowry? Angry Birds. No, it wasn't Lowry. It was uh, Tina. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, and Tina was fascinated by by what she saw and, and we got together and actually Tina was one of the co-founders of Lifter. Ah. So had it not been for my dad and Lisa, I would never have met Tina. See, that's interesting because yeah. I remember, I don't know what year that was, but I interviewed Leitner 2016 or yeah. 17 and she mentioned she's got this thing she's working on and i i, I did because i'm always swamped i never i didn't follow up about it but maybe that was what that it was, was. definitely lifter. Yeah. <laughs> how funny do you still work together or yeah, she's she, yeah. still she's still you know she's always going to be one of the co-founders yeah, she's yeah. still an active consultant oh um, wow um, yeah. how funny we did a big project with the opera and ballet here and then we did another one called dinner time 360 where we look at families from different cultures and we go literally into their sort of dinner time experience uh, i love that because it's such that's such a personal space kind of a lot of what we assume of other people is just kind of our first reactions to them walking down the street but sitting with someone around the table is quite an intimate experience and well, i had a couple of questions so one is i can only imagine the production costs for the content must be quite high or a struggle to keep from not getting too high. So how do you kind of create something that is really immersive and high quality whilst also accessible in terms of if it's within the education sector in terms of cost? Mm -hmm. And then the other one was, yeah, what's next? Like, What would you love to do and and what's kind of next over the next couple of years for you you all? Okay, so production cost-wise, because we started with this sort of blind love and passion for what we were doing we we already actually created quite a few of the stories before we started lifter and then we just said well this will be our content so we didn't have to pay anything for it because we'd already made it and we owned the rights to it yeah and i think that 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 gave us a bit of an unfair advantage over uh, new startups having said that we put in years of blood sweat and tears to create what we had so we started off with content that would normally cost hundreds of thousands of pounds to make so that was that was a good leg up as it were uh, for us but then we have to continue making that content and our idea now and what we've started doing is we've started working with filmmakers around the world Mm -hmm. so our content our documentary content is always three to six minutes long and there isn't much of a market for three to six minute duration documentaries that people usually make those kinds of things for film festivals they can be really really powerful and we totally believe yeah, in, in in that because we that's what we make and that's what we specialize in we also know lots of people and lots of filmmakers around the world who make these to sort of show what they can do 
and then they'll move on to a bigger project. So after a couple of years, their their short films will, will mm-hmm. not be doing it's like anything. A, just be sitting a door on the shelf. A, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we are we, we've got an active call out for filmmakers to send us three to, to six minute powerful short documentaries that have a a strong central character, and we're in we're actually in the middle of our selection process now, where we're looking at which ones we like and shortlisting them, and then we'll make agreements with each filmmaker mm-hmm. with a view to going back and getting t- in, in touch with, with the people and, and building the 360 worlds around them and the other media content around these stories. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. So, and, and that's certainly a lot cheaper than building them from scratch. We do hope that with enough money coming into Lifter, we will also be able to commission new work, uh, yeah. again, from filmmakers around the world because we want to have, because so far, 90% of the stuff that, that is on Lifter has been directed by Paulina and myself. And we don't want to be the only voice of Lifter. We want it to be a really diverse range of voices from around the world. And in terms of what's next, are are you sort of seeking investment to be able to do some of that stuff? Or, you know, is it about internationalising in terms of which schools you're in? Or what's kind of next on the cards for you? In terms of internationalising, we're very much focused on the UK and Finland. We've got limited resources and, and there are plenty of schools in these two countries. So we're focused on the Finnish curriculum and the UK curriculum. Having said that, we're just about to launch Lifter 2.0, which is the updated version of Lifter, which is really easy to translate and also gives teachers a tool called the Lifter Lesson Builder, where they can literally drag and drop the content from Lifter into a lesson plan, add tasks and activities, link that to uh, curriculum objectives, and then just publish it to the children. So the children then have a, a sort of scaffolding and a task list, basically which gives them enough space to also do some independent exploration but also keeps them on track and in the uk and in finland have you got sort of top two or three schools in each country where if people are listening in and they're interested they should go and chat to those schools if they're already using lifter as well yeah so in the uk i'd say please go and chat to jack lacey who's was the head teacher of victoria park primary school in bristol he's now the exec head of all of the I think four primary schools in that mat, but he embedded it amazingly well into his school. All of his teachers were using Lifter. He was doing assemblies with it. They are the sort of on a school-wide best users in the country. Our top user last year was a lady called Helena Morrissey. I hope she doesn't mind me mentioning her name. And Helena used Lifter something like sixty times in four months. And when we noticed that, we got in touch with her and just said, "Oh, you know." We found out that she was in Manchester and I was going to go to Manchester. So I said, can we have a meeting just to, to ask you some questions to see how you're using Lifter? And I didn't realise she was a special needs teacher. Oh, um, and she'd been using it with, with autistic children, uh, MLD, ASD. Uh, and she said she's seen absolute transformations in in her children. They've become more communicative, more expressive. Their relationships with each other have improved. And she attributes this to, to Lifter's content. Now, we didn't design Lufta for autistic children. It's for Guardian readers. <laughs> yeah, it's for Guardian readers, guys. Come on. <laughs> yeah, um, so that's really cool when it sort of yeah. goes off in different tangents there. Yeah. yeah. And so now we're working uh, with a network of special needs schools to try and make sure that our updates are as inclusive as possible. Um, mm-hmm. We're not going to change, we don't want to change too much because what we've done seems to be working, but we do want to, to, to keep it and make it as, as inclusive as possible. And how about in Finland as well? Which schools here are... In Finland, so we have a number of schools in Helsinki. So I just mentioned Lifter 2.0. Our first test 
is happening today okay. in Kalasatama School in Helsinki, which is one of the sort of forward-thinking new age schools in Helsinki. So that would be an interesting one to go to. Yeah, yeah. I've also got a really good relationship. We've got good, I don't want to offend anyone, we've got good relationships with lots of schools in Finland, but schools that st- uh, stick out in Espoo, which is the city we're in now, which is right next to Helsinki. It's, a, it's another one of these brilliant, forward-thinking, progressive schools If people are interested and want to follow up with what you're doing or check out, I guess you've got, probably got like a hundred page, haven't you now, dedicated to Lyfter and Yeah, we've got a hundred page. We've also got our own website, which is lyfter.com, L-Y-F-T-A.com. And actually, we are working with the British Council on the new Connecting Classrooms for Global Learning program. And there will be an opportunity for British schools to get subsidies mm. for training on lifter and we will offer free subscriptions to people who train with the british council subsidies fantastic so if, someone, if people are interested in that they can get in touch just on the chat box on our website cool thank you very much thank you thanks for listening everyone If you enjoy the EdTech podcast, do us a favor and follow us at Podcast EdTech on Twitter, rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen in, or contact us about advertising across our 2019 episodes. In 2019, we will also be looking to expand the team. If you're interested in supporting our mission by working with us, get in touch at the edtechpodcast at gmail.com. We will be formally advertising roles in the spring. Have a great week. Bye-bye.